Answering Mormon's Questions by Bill McKeever and Eric Johnson deals with 36 commonly asked questions by your LDS friends and neighbors. It's a great resource for Christians who want to share their faith with friends and loved ones. Be sure to pick up your copy today at your favorite Christian bookstore. Viewpoint on Mormonism, the program that examines the teachings of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints from a biblical perspective. Viewpoint on Mormonism is sponsored by Mormonism Research Ministry. Since 1979, Mormonism Research Ministry has been dedicated to equipping the body of Christ with answers regarding the Christian faith in a manner that expresses gentleness and respect. And now, your host for today's Viewpoint on Mormonism. So glad you could be with us for this edition of Viewpoint on Mormonism. I'm your host, Bill McKeever, founder and director of Mormonism Research Ministry, and with me today is Eric Johnson, my colleague at MRM. We've been looking at a conference message that was given by Gordon B. Hinckley back in April of 1990. This was a message that he gave to the General Priesthood Session. Those are normally held on a Saturday night. He was speaking only to male members of the church. At the time, he was a first counselor in the first presidency. He would not become the president of the church till later. But this was a talk titled, Keeping the Temple Holy. And he's talking about the importance of the temple recommend that he explains as a type of spiritual credit card. In fact, that's the illustration that he uses at the beginning of his talk when he holds up before his audience two credit cards. And he says, most of you are familiar with cards such as these. The first, he says, is a bank credit card. And the other, he says, is a temple recommend. And he says, the recommend represents a credit card with the Lord, making available to me many of his greatest gifts. We're looking now at some of the questions that are asked of Latter-day Saints when they go to receive a recommend. They, they sit before their ecclesiastical leaders. In yesterday's show, we were citing Mr. Hinckley where he says it goes without saying that those applying for the recommend must be totally honest when they are interrogated. And we thought that was an interesting word for for Gordon B. Hinckley to use. But he says that the questions are not to cause embarrassment and should not do so. But yet we asked yesterday, how could it not cause embarrassment? Unless, of course, you only answer affirmatively to the questions you're being asked. If you can't answer affirmatively, I would almost think that you probably should be embarrassed that you're not living up to these standards, and yet you're trying to get into a place that Gordon B. Hinckley says is the most holy place on earth. What does he go on to say there, Eric? Some of these questions are specific in their nature. These concern such things as tithing and the word of wisdom. Of course, one is expected to be a full tithe payer. The payment of tithing is simply a faithful response to a commandment of the Lord. So it is a commandment in Mormonism that you must pay a tithe, a 10% tithe. And there's some distinction between paying on the net and paying on the gross of your income. It's kind of left up to the member. But what does Mormon 832 say about this in the Book of Mormon? Because obviously, to be in the Book of Mormon, I have to assume this is something that was on Joseph Smith's mind when he was writing the Book of Mormon. And I admit, I do believe that Joseph Smith is the author of the Book of Mormon. I don't think it came from ancient gold tablets at all. But what does it say in Mormon 832? Yea, it shall come in a day when there shall be churches built up that shall say, Come unto me, and for your money you shall be forgiven of your sins. 
doesn't that sound like it may be defining the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints? Because if paying a tithe is a commandment of the Lord, and if you don't pay it, that's obviously a sin that you are not forgiven of, then it would seem that that would kind of define what the LDS Church is about, at least in that particular area. So you you would think they would almost be cautious making this a commandment in light of Mormon 832 in the Book of Mormon. He goes on to say, is the observance of the word of wisdom necessary? And of course, the word of wisdom is found in section 89. We've talked about it before. And this is the section in the Doctrine and Covenants that talks about things that a Latter-day Saint should eat or not eat as far as uh, alcohol is concerned, the use of tobacco and so forth. He says, the brethren have long felt that it certainly must be. Observance of the word of wisdom is concerned with the care of one's body, which the Lord has asserted is of itself a temple, a tabernacle of the Spirit. He has said, Yea, man is the tabernacle of God, even temples, and whatsoever temple is defiled, God shall destroy that temple. And that's from Doctrine and Covenants, section 93, verse 35. Let me stop you there, Eric, because we've talked about this word of wisdom. It was not always a requirement to get a temple recommend in the history of the LDS Church. In fact, Section 89, if you read at the very beginning of Section 89, it's not even a commandment. It's only given really as a a suggestion, probably a positive suggestion, I would say, but it certainly is not a commandment. It was not made into a commandment till very late. In fact, I think, wasn't it the 1960s when it became very specific that you had to be observing the word of wisdom in order to get a temple recommend? Up until that time, it was kind of vague. You, you should, you better, you, you might do that, but not necessarily in order to get a recommend. But by the 1960s, now it becomes absolute. You must be keeping the word of wisdom if you hope to get a recommend. He continues, I recall a bishop telling me of a woman who came to get a recommend. When asked if she observed the word of wisdom, she said that she occasionally drank a cup of coffee. She said, now, bishop, you're not going to let that keep me from going to the temple, are you? To which he replied, sister, surely you will not let a cup of coffee stand between you and the house of the Lord. That's an interesting story that he tells here because He's speaking of a bishop who said this, but yet that is something that the 10th president of the church said. That would be Joseph Fielding Smith. He says this in his book, The Doctrines of Salvation, volume 2, page 16. What does he say there? Salvation and a cup of tea. You cannot neglect little things. Oh, a cup of tea is such a little thing. It is so little. Surely it doesn't amount to much. Surely the Lord will forgive me if I drink a cup of tea. Yes, he will forgive you, because he is going to forgive every man who repents. But my brethren, if you drink coffee or tea or take tobacco, are you letting a cup of tea or a little tobacco stand in the road and bar you from the celestial kingdom of God, where you might otherwise have received a fullness of glory? It sounds like this bishop, if he really existed, was getting his cue from Joseph Fielding Smith. My, my question is here, why didn't Gordon B. Hinckley cite Joseph Fielding Smith to begin with? I would think that he carries a lot more clout among Latter-day Saints than a bishop. But I, I think he's making his point, and I think in the context of Mormonism, he's not out of line in this, because that's exactly what is being taught. Now here, you might say, Eric, we have two presidents of the church espousing this same thought. One cup of coffee can bar you. One cup of tea 
can bar you. That's pretty serious. He continues, do we sustain our local and general authorities? This is not concerned with an exercise in paying homage to those whom the Lord has called to preside. It is a basic question of recognition of the fact that God has called a prophet to stand at the head of his church, that he has called others to work with him on a general level, and that that which they espouse and teach come of unitedly praying together, pondering together, seeking the will of the Lord, receiving that will, and following it. My question regarding that statement there is, what do you do with the many members of the LDS Church who are voicing their disapproval of some of the positions that the leadership takes on a lot of the social issues facing our culture today? There are a lot of voices who oppose those positions and want to see the church change in those areas. Would that defile those individuals who go into the temple because they're not really sustaining the general authorities, perhaps with a vote that they do in general conference where they have to raise their hands to sustain them. But doesn't it also mean not just voting for them, but you also sustain them in what they teach? That's exactly what Hinckley seems to be saying when he says, and that that which they espouse and teach. So it would seem from that statement that you should be in line with what the LDS leadership is teaching. And if you're a member who disagrees vehemently with the position that your leaders are taking, that would mean, I think, that you are disqualified. But yet, who's going to know this? That is probably not going to be a specific question that's going to be raised in your interview with your ecclesiastical leader. So you could slip between the cracks on that. Hinckley continues, likewise, unless there is loyalty toward the bishop and stake present on a local level, there will be an absence of harmony. There will be suspicion and hesitation to serve with fidelity. There will be that kind of division, which is always destructive of faith. He goes on and says, loyalty to leadership is a cardinal requirement of all who serve in the army of the Lord. A house divided against itself cannot stand. See Mark chapter 3, verse 25. Unity is basic and essential, declared the Lord, quote, if you are not one, ye are not mine, end quote. That's Doctrine and Covenants, section 38, verse 27. Failure to sustain those in authority is incompatible with service in the temple. That's one thing about Mormonism that I, I find intriguing. It seems like there are a lot of members who can get away with an awful lot in the church and kind of fly under the radar, if you will. But boy, if they get caught and it becomes public knowledge that they are disloyal to what the leaders are saying, that could very well get them into a lot of trouble. Maybe not a, an excommunication, but perhaps even a disfellowship, which is kind of a, a level lower than excommunication, you can get into a lot of trouble for disagreeing publicly with the leaders of the LDS Church. Notice I, I made it very clear, publicly. They would probably argue that you're allowed to have your own ideas, even if they disagree with the leadership of the church. I can't imagine the church getting so specific to say, you can't even think differently than we do. They're not going to go that far. But if you were to take your disagreements and go out publicly and start voicing them and you cause embarrassment to the church, I can almost guarantee you that's going to get you into trouble. You're not allowed to do that. 
And this is why I think Hinckley is saying something like this, because what he's saying here is not uncommon. People who are excommunicated from the church, usually it's because they brought some embarrassment upon the church. Usually that embarrassment can be a moral failure of some sort, but sometimes it can even be voicing a disapproval of what is going on in the church. Remember years ago, it was probably around the time that that Hinckley gave this talk, there were six members of the church that were brought up on charges and excommunicated for holding positions publicly that went against the grain of what the leadership was teaching at that particular time. Now, I would argue, too, though, that those six probably would get away with it now because the church is pretty lax in bringing charges like that against those who may disagree. And I think the reason why is sometimes the negative publicity that comes from that is worse than excommunicating. So I think that they just decide to let things go under the table. And and, and I think they bend much more than they used to back in the 1990s. Yeah, I still stand by my statement that exercising your difference of opinion vocally and doing it vociferously could eventually get you in trouble, but the chances of it happening nowadays is probably a lot less than what it would have been, let's say, even back in 1990 when Gordon B. Hinckley gave this talk. Tomorrow, we're going to continue looking at this message that Gordon B. Hinckley gave, a sermon titled, Keeping the Temple Holy. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information regarding Mormonism Research Ministry, we encourage you to visit our website at www.mrm.org, where you can request our free newsletter, Mormonism Researched. We hope you will join us again as we look at another viewpoint on Mormonism.